Thank you. Uh, just to make it <laughs> clear, I, of course, I will not be dealing with uh, non-entities like uh, Alan Johnson or uh, John Gray and so on. I, I mean, read them. If you find, if you find anything of any interest in their attacks on me, then you simply shouldn't read. I mean, then you are beyond help. I want to, to nonetheless seriously answer two, three other critical points made. First, a couple of observations about the ongoing political situation in Europe, all the protests uh, exploding. I think that these protests seem to converge in a series of demands which, in their very spontaneity and obviousness, form a kind of, I apologize for this jargon, a kind of epistemological obstacle to the proper confrontation with the ongoing crisis. What people usually demand when they protest is really uh, what it amounts to, it's a kind of a popularized version of Deleuzean politics. People know what they want, they are able to discover and formulate it, but only through their own continuous engagement and activity. So we need, so we are told, active participatory democracy, not just representative democracy with its electoral ritual every four years, which just interrupts the voters' passivity. Then we are told we need the self-organization of the multitude, molecular from beneath, uh, not a centralized Leninist party with the leader and so on and so on. It is, I think, this myth of non-representative direct self-organization, which is the last trap, the deepest illusion, which is most difficult to renounce. Yes, there are in every revolutionary process ecstatic moments of group solidarity when thousands, hundreds of thousands, together occupy a public space, like on Tahrir Square in Cairo two years ago. Yes, there are moments of intense collective participation where local communities debate, decide, when people live in a kind of permanent emergency state, taking things into their own hands with no leader guiding them. But I claim such states don't last. And tiredness, getting tired of it, is not a simple psychological fact. So now comes my first thesis. I will try to be as brutal and uh, provocative as possible. The large majority of people, and I'm not here presenting you the variation of that 99% of the people are idiots, no? I include myself into this large majority. Uh, large majority, I claim, wants to be passive and just rely on an efficient state apparatus. Like, I'm sorry to tell you, but I wouldn't like to live in a state where some kind of permanent participation, engagement is going on and so on and so on. I much prefer to be a passive citizen. There is a machinery of state or whatever social services which smoothly does its work and the less I know about it, all the better. 
And I don't despise ordinary people for it. Uh, next point, people really know what they want when they are engaged. I claim, uh, no, they don't. Up to a point, I claim, even the majority even don't want to know, really. Uh, I claim that we should rehabilitate, of course, not in the old class sense, the term uh, elite. What does a good politician do? A good politician absolutely doesn't follow or learn from the people what they want. No, he tells them what they want. And if he is a really good politician, people have this a high effect. Oh my God, how clear, now I know what I want. And again, I found nothing authoritarian or whatever in this. Uh, as to this molecular self-organizing multitude against hierarchic order and so on, well, I always start to laugh because when I ask people, especially today, okay, okay, give me an example of this, no? They told me, but you know what's going on in Venezuela? Uh, you know, factories being given to workers, they organize themselves in communes and so on and so on. Yes, but if you want a leaderless society, I somehow wouldn't exactly propose Venezuela as a model, <laughs> you know? You have the big fat guy on the top, which is absolutely inherent to this. It's absolutely naive not to see how, and it's a nice dialectical case, how, of course, sometimes it is happening in Venezuela, a kind of authentic local in favelas or self-organization outside the standard uh, multi-party representative mechanisms. But I claim that the leader, which is precisely a kind of a trans-democratic leader, strong, charismatic leader, is strictly correlative to this low-level elementary self-awakening of the people. They belong together. Is it as, as if you want real awakening of the people, then you need a charismatic leader on the top. At, as to, again, to the... Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, so now, what's my point here? Does this rejection of direct democracy mean a resigned surrender to the hegemonic power structure? Am I simply saying, yeah, yeah, revolution is good for a, or direct democracy for a couple of months when things are in turmoil, but then things return back to normal uh, and so on and so on? No. I think that there is nothing inherently conservative in being tired of the usual leftist demands for permanent mobilization, active participation, and so on. This is the leftist superego logic. The more you participate, the more you are guilty for not participating enough, and so on, and so on. The battle, I claim, the true battle of the left has to be won here. By here, I mean in the domain of citizens' passivity. The true measure of change is not those ecstatic moments we are all on Tahrir Square or whatever, but when things return back to normal. Is this normality the same as before? You know, how is your everyday life affected? This is the revolution which is really difficult to make. Uh, let me make along these lines a step further. 
one of the politico-ideological topics rendered popular by different Deleuzeans, Negri, and so on, is the idea that we are witnessing today the shift from traditional hierarchy, a pyramid-like subordination to a master, a shift from this hierarchy to, as they put it, pluralizing rhizomatic networks. Along these lines, political analysts like to point out that the new anti-globalist protests all around Europe and United States, from Occupy Wall Street to Spain, Greece, although Greece is more interesting here, have no central agency. All people, even in my own country, Slovenia, who, Slovenia, who demonstrate, this is wonderful, there is no central committee, we just meet, we debate, and so on. Uh, there are just multiple groups interacting. Uh, again, what I'm tempted to say are two things. First, was it in this room when we had last year a round table where Wendy Brown was here, or in the other room? She made an extremely important point, and since I am nonetheless a moderately polite person, I didn't want to provoke her too much by asking her the obvious question. Namely, you remember when she said how we leftists still behave as we are as if we are fighting a hierarchic central paternal power, while today's capitalism, power itself, already works, operates in this, let's call it in fashionable terms, post-Edipal, multitude way, and so on and so on. I mean, the question to ask, I wanted to ask her, but out of politeness I didn't, would have been, is this your family polemics? I mean, because uh, my problem with Judith Butler is that she mostly writes as if the enemy is still some kind of patriarchal, identitarian logic. No. As Wendy made it very clear, today's power itself, and this was clear to Deleuze up to a point also, today's power more and more already functions in this non-hierarchic uh, multitude mode, which makes it, and that's the paradox, which makes it uh, no less uh, oppressive. Now, there is a step to be made here, which I'm nonetheless not ready to make it. And I admire my good friend enemy, Alain Badiou, that he made this step, but I'm not ready to follow him here. Namely, there is something nonetheless wrong in what he did. This is my first reply to critics. My first critic is here, my best friend almost, Alain Badiou. Uh, in a recent interview, of, uh, he published a short book uh, together with, and this I will never forgive him, together with Elizabeth Rudinesco. A, a dialogue where, uh, it's quite shocking what he, they together proposed there. The idea is that since all this Galician horizontal networking and so on is the way as Badiou likes to put it, today's human-animal function, our utilitarian everyday life, the only way to break the spell of bourgeois ideology today is with a new master. That left should reinvent the master. Uh, his idea is a very simple one, Badiou's. It's that, you know Badiou's opposition between animal life, just hedonist individuals, and then subject. Subject as defined by his, her, their fidelity to truth. And but this point is very simple here. What makes 
an individual, you know, this pleasure-oriented bourgeois individual, a subject is fidelity to a master. It's a total rehabilitation of a master. And I almost admire Badiou here because he goes to the end and claims that there was a deep necessity in so-called cult of personality in communist movement. Lenin, Stalin, Mao. Here is the quote. Uh, it's, uh, there are three persons, Rudinesco, Badiou, and then uh, Aya Shiman. This is the journalist of uh, Liberation. Now he moved to Nouvel Observateur, who is asking them. Rudinesco, in the last resort, what was lost in psychoanalytic societies is the position of the master to the benefit of the position of small bosses. The journalist, what do you mean by master? Rudinesco, the position of the master allows transference. The psychoanalyst is supposed to know what the analyson will discover. Without this knowledge attributed to the psychoanalyst, the search for the origin of suffering is quasi-impossible. The journalist, do we really have to go through the restoration of the master? Uh, but you, now, quite crazy. The master is the one who helps the individual to become subject. That is to say, if one admits that the subject emerges in the tension between the individual and the universality, then it is obvious that the individual needs a mediation and thereby an authority in order to progress on this path. The crisis of the master is a logical consequence of the crisis of the subject, and psychoanalysis did not escape it. One has to renew the position of the master. It is not true that one can do without it, and especially in the perspective of emancipation. Do you see the nice paradox? Without master, no emancipation. And then Elizabeth Rudinesco does the last kick. Rudinesco, when the master disappears, he is replaced by the boss, by his bosses, authoritarianism, and sooner or later, this always ends in fascism. Unfortunately, history has proven this to us. Now, this is even for me, with my bad test jokes, a little bit too much. Like, the only the only defense against fascism is a master. Although, again, one has to admit the obvious element of truth in it, that in today's type of subjectivity, we effectively no longer have a traditional patriarchal master figure. And again, I'm not saying anything extra new here. This was known, for example, already to Horkheimer and Adorno way back in the 1930s, where in their excellent analysis, Horkheimer in Autorität und Familie, Authority and Family, Adorno in his analysis of structure of fascist propaganda, emphasized that the totalitarian leader, Hitler, Stalin, these are not master figures. Uh, but uh, Nonetheless, my problem is that, uh, I hope we agree here, that, uh, of course, this post-Edipal, post-modern subjectivity, infinitely plastic subjectivity, you reconstruct yourself all the time, and so on, and so on, that, that uh, this one fits perfectly today's relations of domination. That even if you don't have 
master in this classical sense. Oppression can be even worse. This is, I accept this. And furthermore, I think I repeat myself a little bit here that the last time I was here, I already developed this, namely that we have regimes today which we would all have agreed are, in some naive sense, extremely authoritarian, totalitarian, and so on, but they are not the regimes of the patriarchal master. And there was a book written by a guy called, I forgot his Christian name, I'm sorry, it's Myers, M-Y something, called The Cleanest Race. I think, again, I repeat myself a little bit, but now let's make the point, about today's North Korea. The guy did something pretty interesting. He lived as a journalist in Korea and used the North Korea and used a little bit of freedom that he had to go a little bit, he was allowed to, I don't know how to countryside. He looked not at the propaganda that North Korea uh, addresses to the West, but at, as it were, propaganda for aborigines, their own people there, and discovered that it's absolutely not, that all this bullshit about Korea being deeply embedded in old Confucian society and so on, no, it's strictly matriarchal. And it's a wonderful, very simple book, but, for example, he draws attention to the fact that with all Stalinist retouching and so on, if you look at the official portraits of the leader, uh, the old two ones, now it's different, who knows what will come out of this young guy, uh, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, the official portraits don't try to obliterate, diminish their tummy, stomach, their stockiness, it's even emphasized. Like, there are some almost embarrassing portraits of Kim Il-sung, where you see his stomach and even relatively strong for a man, breasts and so on. So this guy went deeply into it and discovered that the entire state metaphorics is party and leader are mothers. And he gives some wonderful, maybe you know them, sorry, examples. I don't have enough time to quote them all. For example, the most popular North Korean party song is dedicated to the Communist Party as mother. And it's an absolutely obscene song. That we Korean children, are, uh, people, are like children sucking milk from the big breasts of uh, of party, ma our mother, and we will never abandon your breasts. We need your breasts to survive. And then this guy provides another promise, another wonderful example. He did something ingeniously simple. He looked into the latest edition of the Korean official, like dictionary of Korean language, and looked at the two entries, mother, father. The entry mother is over one page. It goes into mother, all the definitions first, the biological mother of a child, then metaphoric, mother of the family who takes care of all of them, and then, yes, as you expect, in the larger sense, the party is the mother of the people, blah, blah, with all the examples. And then, uh, father, one line. <laughs> the man who helped the mother to become a mother. <laughs> I, you know, and then, in a more subtle analysis even, he claims, did you notice how Kim Jong-il, who now died, the middle leader, how he usually had some strange, ordinary winged jacket and his hair was kind of a, no? That uh, he claims that this is the typical image of a 
Korean ordinary women who has these mass-produced plastic jackets and spends hours waiting for food and so on and so on, that it's again a subtle maternal identification. Now, uh, I am definitely not buying here the standard patriarchal bullshit advocated, unfortunately, by some Lacanians like Pierre Legendre in France, according to which, oh, we should return to paternal authority if you want more power to the women, you get North Korea and so on. No, I'm not saying this. All I'm saying is something much more. Of course, the first thing to note would be here that the obvious thing, you know, which one can learn also from old histories that you know. If you are precisely a woman, beware of societies where you have a mother goddess ruling you. you know. Then actual women are usually even more oppressed than in the standard patriarchal society. So, of course, this mother is a male myth. Of course, at the de facto level, male domination is absolute in North Korea. This guy reports on how even what you get in some communist countries where, as a rule, I remember from my youth and reading books, like, to show how nonetheless we take care of women's rights, usually you have three ministries which were, in socialist countries, more or less reserved for women, you know. They are, of course, the soft one where there is not real power. It's education, health and culture, you know. They can be left to women, but never the serious ministries. So, again, of course, this is a mystified knowledge, but all I'm saying is, nonetheless, this simple fact that, uh, and this is what was nicely formulated already by Horkheimer, that with all the oppressiveness, the traditional paternal authority, nonetheless, gave you a kind of a support within, for example, Protestant logic to oppose yourself to external authority. You know, like, it's, you know, it's a great, I'm saying this shamelessly, a great civilizatory achievement to have in the ruling ideological, ideological structure a space for radical opposition, so that you can say officially, as it were, that it's my right to oppose society is wrong and so on. And here, patriarchal authority can, up to a point, up to a point, play a positive role. But let me now make a step further. I nonetheless think, and Lacan is here much better than but you and Rudinesco, that uh, this is an irreversible process. What is going on today is, I think, the final decline of the figure of the master as the symbolic authority and so on and so on. I think they are simply too nostalgic here, Rudinesco and uh, but you. No, we cannot return. What happens today with whatever we call it, postmodern capitalism, uh, is that uh, the symbolic authority is fatally wounded. We cannot return to it. So, uh, uh, and I find especially strange from Badiou to advocate this return to the master, because, you know, Badiou likes to emphasize, for example, in his book on the communist hypothesis that the only politics can be serious politics can be the communist politics all others are just pragmatic opportunism and so on and so on yeah but i claim that the only we can only talk seriously about emancipatory 
politics if the master, master is not the ultimate horizon of our social life. If we cannot imagine a society which is not held together by a master figure, but in a different way, then we can pack our luggage and just say, okay, let's, let's play pragmatic, uh, let's play pragmatic uh, politics and so on and so on. So again, the challenges, the challenges are great here. I think that in this debate, but you versus postmodern, fluid, plural, multitude figures of authority, I think that both, both, both poles are wrong. Mas the structure of a master, as well as this polymorphous multitude structure, it doesn't function. There is a challenge here. And there are some hints in Lacan or somewhere that you can have a social link which is not founded on the figure of the master. Next point, now I come more to self uh, to criticism, would be where for which I'm often attacked would be violence. That I am my God, I'm it's quite funny for me to read about myself that I'm secretly fascinated by violence, that I'm dreaming about some, uh, some I don't know, final explosion where it will be the purifying end of the world, whatever you want. Uh, 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 no, again, I think that, apropos violence, first one should demystify the problem of violence. In what sense? One should reject claims that the 20th century communism used too much excessive murderous violence, and that we should be careful not to fall into this trap again. I mean, of course, in a way, this is true. But I claim that it's not the right way to approach what went wrong with the 20th century communism. Violence is not directly the cause of it. You know, it's not to say as some naive Marxists do say. And somebody showed to me a, a book, just the quote, I didn't read it, of course, of Tariq Ali, <coughs> The Idea of Communism. You know, the book which was published one year after the Conference on Communism, and our book, ready, which was finished earlier, appeared only a year later. So you can make your own thoughts about it. How is it that a verse author, the moment he heard about our project, the idea of communism, wrote quickly another book with the same title as an answer. Okay, there he says, the tragedy of communism was that they forgot about democracy. They didn't, no, like, no, I claim, of course, it was terrifying recourse to violence, but, the, but to resolve the problem, one should precisely not directly say, oh, we should take care of, or we should, we, we should have taken care of violence, what, prohibit such violence. No, the true problem is what was wrong in the communist project, the way it was formulated in the 20th century, what was wrong in the project as, as such, so that the only way to survive, he had to take recourse to violence. Violence, as is always the case, was already an answer to a certain deadlock. So as I put it in my book, far from celebrating violence, I think that if we mean what we usually mean by violence, direct physical violence and so on, violence is always 
from individual to collective level, a sign of impotence, basically. I mean, this is an old story, you know it. If your father beats you, slaps you, it may hurt you, but it all, as a rule, ruins his authority. The fact that the father slaps you means he was really impotent. He lacked proper authority. And it's the same socially. If you look at all the big explosions of violence, Hitler, Stalin, and so on. For example, what is arguably the greatest violence in Soviet Union? The late 20s, early 30s, the forced collectivization. This violence was one big proof that they were not able to approach properly the problem of, uh, of peasants, farmers, collectivization, agriculture, and so on and so on. That's, so again, it's stupid to say communists neglected the problem of violence or neglected the, import, the importance of democracy. No, this neglect is not simply the last cause. It's a reaction to some deeper failure. Uh, now I will try to, to answer, I'm sorry for a relatively long quote, uh, one of the critics of myself, it was formulated uh, somewhere, I will even not quote the author because by mistake I dropped that reference, it doesn't really matter. It's a very interesting criticism of me because it is kind of a reaction to my refutal of the first level criticism. The first level criticism is, you know, all this, uh, uh, Alan Johnson, John Gray, and uh, Simon Critchley stuff, that I'm fascinated by some violent explosion, blah, blah, blah. I'm really a coward who just dreams of some violence, blah, blah. Okay, now when these guys are forced to admit that nonetheless I'm not as crazy as that, then they change the argument and claim that what I am really doing is just putting in provocative terms an extremely common sense obvious point, which is totally acceptable, but just not interesting. For example, when I say the problem with Hitler was that he wasn't violent enough. Okay, at this point you get the heart attack of liberals. No, ah, do you think you should have killed us all Jews or what? You know. But then when I add, in the sense in which Gandhi was more violent than Hitler, then they say, oh, it's just that he's making a totally common sense point, that one thing is violence in the normal sense of killing people, another thing is social change. And why do I have to put it in this confusing, provocative way, using the same word violence and both levels, why don't I just say we have violence as killing people, torturing, which is unacceptable, and we have a radical social change, which is not inherently linked to violence. So that I'm just trying to make a scandalous effect, you know, but really what I'm saying is something even totally acceptable for a liberal. So that you will not say that I'm dreaming the argument, please allow me two minutes, a long quote. Zizek is here using language in a way that is designed to be provocative and to confuse people. He doesn't actually mean that Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. What he means to do instead is to alter the typical understanding of the word violence, so that Gandhi's non-violent means of protest against the British 
will be considered more violent than Hitler's incredibly violent attempts at world domination and genocide. Violence for Zizek in this particular instance actually means that which causes massive social upheaval. In that way, he considers Gandhi to be more violent than Hitler. But this, like so much of what Zizek writes, is actually nothing new or interesting or surprising. And that's why he writes it in the provocative, confusing, and bizarre manner that he chooses instead of a straightforward manner. If he would have written that Gandhi accomplished more through nonviolence that aimed at systemic change than Hitler accomplished through violent means, we would all agree. But we would also know that there is nothing profound in such a statement. Instead, Zizek attempts to shock us, and in doing so, he covers up the completely humdrum conclusion about Gandhi and Hitler that everyone already believed to be true before they read Zizek. The same is true of Zizek's controversial point about Jews and anti-Semites. There is nothing remarkable about the argument that in the mind of every Nazi who hates Jews, there must also be a fictional Jew for that Nazi to hate. And thus any attempt to read Nazis of the Jews within themselves, as Zizek tells us, Hitler once said, would result in the destruction of the Nazis themselves, since the anti-Semites in themselves require the continued existence of the Jews within themselves. In other words, Zizek is once again simply making a muddled word salad in an attempt to dress up commonplaces as profundity. Gandhi's method for changing things worked because he went after the system itself. The anti-Semite can never kill the object of his hatred because his worldview necessitates the fictional Jew. End of quote. <laughs> Admit it, you were convinced, no? <laughs> okay. In both cases, so you got it, the reproach is the same. I try, I try to sell the common thesis that Gandhi aimed at changing the system, not destroying people, but since this is a commonplace, I want to be provocatively popular, I formulate it more provocatively, weirdly expanding the meaning of the word violence to include institutional changes. The same goes for my statement about the Jew is in the anti-Semite, but the anti-Semite is also in the Jew. It's just a garbled way to deliver the commonplace that, in the mind of every Nazi who hates Jews, there must also be a fictional Jew for that Nazi to hate. Like, you know, that the Nazis don't really hate actual Jews, but what they hate, what they construct as the object of their hatred is their own fantasy. But is this the case? What if, I claim, the key point gets lost in this translation of my, as the kind writer wrote, muddled word salad, into common sense. In the second case, it's wonderful how he missed my point. My point is not just the effectively obvious claim that the Jew to whom the Nazi refers in his ideological, that this Jew is his ideological fiction. Uh, I know this is a commonplace, but I'm saying something else. What I'm saying is that his own ideolo ideological identity of the Nazi is simultaneously grounded in this fiction, not simply depending on it. The Nazi is, in his self-perception, 
a figure in his own dream about the Jews. And this, I think, you see my point. It's not only that the Jew is in me, my fantasy. It's that I am in the Jew, in the sense that I am part of my own ideological dream. It's a slightly more complex point. So back to, now to Gandhi. So why call Gandhi's attempts to undermine the British state in India more violent than Hitler's mass killings? Well, to draw attention to the fundamental violence that sustains a normal functioning of the state. Benjamin called it mythic violence. And the, the no less fundamental violence that sustains every attempt to undermine the functioning of the state. Benjamin's divine violence. This is why the reaction of the state power to those who endanger it through peaceful demonstrations and so on is so brutal. And why in its very brutality this reaction is reactive in, the Nietzsche's, in Nietzsche's sense, protective. So far from eccentricity, the extension of the notion of violence, so that for me, nonetheless, Hitler was violent, but Gandhi also, is based on a key theoretical insight. And it is the limitation of violence to its directly visible physical aspect, which, far from being neutral common sense, relies on ideological distortion. This is also why the reproach that I am fascinated by some ultra-radical violence with comparison to which Hitler and Khmer Rouge didn't go far enough, misses the point, which is not to go further in this type of violence. Like, it's not, oh, why did Khmer Rouge kill only one, one quarter of Cambodians? They should have killed more, one, one half or whatever. Is that one should change the entire terrain, it's difficult, to be, it's difficult to be really violent. And the same holds for violence which has any effect on the system. For example, take, I remember, I'm unfortunately old enough, you, it was possible when I was very young to see them on screen, you know, uh, the, the, uh, in, during Chinese Cultural Revolution, all those uh, thousands of young people trying to get rid of tradition, smashing with, uh, with even sometimes their hands, old monuments, and so on and so on. Already at that point, this did strike me as sign, precisely this physical violence, did strike me as, uh, again, a sign of some fundamental impotence. Uh, so, uh, uh, I am tempted to paraphrase here, again, the old Brecht. What is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a new bank? What are the violent and destructive outbursts of red guardists caught in a cultural revolution compared to the true cultural revolution, which, was, which is the permanent dissolution of all life forms which capitalist reproduction dictates? I mean, if we, again, we have to use the same, you see my point, the same, of course, violence, which I praise, socially trans, the violence of social transformation. Of course, and hopefully it's so, of course, it's not necessarily 
brutal physical violence. But the precise point I'm trying to make is that brutal physical violence is an act of cowardice. It's always a reactive violence, an admission of impotence. You explode in brutal destruction when you can't do the, let's call it naively, real social change. Or, as it's a commonplace of leftist critique of Hitler, uh, he had to kill millions not to change things, but precisely to prevent the real change to occur. In this sense, again, to see things in this continuum of violence, how the true violence is precisely radical social change, and it has nothing to do with physical violence. But again, if we simply say, no, but this is social transformation, why use the term violence? We lose this point, which is for me absolutely crucial, of seeing how all those big violent agents, Hitler, even Stalin, and so on, are really modest reactive, guy, reactive guys, reactive in the sense of uh, uh, that their violence was an admission of impotence, uh, and so on and so on. So much about this. Now, let's go further. Uh, problem, you will have to pardon me another quote, long. Uh, 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 Santiago Zabala, the friend of Gianni uh, 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 Vatimo, recently wrote an essay on me, positively oriented essay for Al Jazeera debate. And then this essay provoked from some uh, multicultural, post-colonial, blah, blah, anti-Eurocentrist guys, a pretty violent response, predictably accusing me of Eurocentrism and so on. Now, this is an interesting debate, up to a point. Why? Uh, uh, here is the quote again. It's a guy called, he teaches, I think, a Duke. Yeah, do you know him? Is he as stupid as he in real life as he sounds? Okay, he, he, here is the quote. I will be fair and, again, translate for you a long, translate, sorry, read you a long passage. As a non-European thinker, my senses reacted to the first sentence of Zizek's article. He is referring to my article on in defense of leftist defense, a plea for leftist Eurocentrism, something like that. Here is what I say. When one says Eurocentrism, every self-respecting postmodern leftist intellectual has a viol as violent a reaction as Joseph Goebbels had to culture, to reach for a gun, hurling accusation of proto-fascist Eurocentrist cultural imperialism. However, is it possible to imagine a leftist appropriation of the European political legacy? That's where he quotes me. And then he, Mignolo, goes on. My response to that paragraph is the following. When one says Eurocentrism, every self-respecting, decolonial, this is probably his neologism to be more respectful than post-colonial, no? This is the good term. Decolonial intellectual has not as violent a reaction as Joseph Goebbels had to culture, to reach for a gun, hurling accusations of proto-fascist Eurocentrist cultural imperialism. 
a self-respecting decolonial intellectual well, will reach instead to Franz Fanon. And then there is a quote from Fanon here. Now, comrades, now is the time to decide to change sides. We must shake off the great mantle of night which has enveloped us and reach for the light. The new day which is dawning must find us determined, enlightened and resolute. So, my brothers, how could we fail to understand that we have better things to do than follow that Europe's footstep? End of quote from Mignolo, and then Mignolo goes on. We decolonial intellectuals, if not philosophers, have better things to do, as Fanon would say, than being engaged with issues debated by European philosophers. It's interesting that, but this is just my sarcastic remark then, then of course I ask myself, okay, fuck you, who are these bloody, much more interesting uh, intellectuals, no? Then, then uh, well, uh, 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 I, let's say I was not overly impressed, no? Like, uh, one of them was otherwise my good friend, uh, Van Kui. Van Kui, how do you pronounce it? Van Kui. Yeah, you know the Chinese uh, leftist. Yeah, but uh, I wouldn't exactly quote him as a model of uh, non-European authentic tradition because I couldn't, he, I'm on very good terms with him, he sent me recently a text on China and modernization where he does an operation which I find deeply problematic. He tries to be, I'm not kidding, what I would have called a, uh, who was the bad guy who did market economy? Milton Friedman. Like, left Friedmanist, left Friedman. He, what he tries to do is to oppose real just market exchange and its capitalist distortion through monopoly and so on and so on. So there is a true, honest market exchange and he explicitly, positively quotes Friedman, and then there are distortions which he, we, in a typical non-Marxist way, he sees the causes of these distortions not in economic relations themselves, but in social pathology. Like he says, when power structure and other social pathologies distort the market, then we get market monopolies, uh, and so on and so on. Sorry, I'm, as you probably know, far, I'm all the time attacked there, fra, far from being a dogmatic Marxist. But nonetheless, I think that there is something in the demonstration of Marx, how the development for this, from this idealized, simple, just market exchange to exploitation, monopoly, and so on, it's an imminent one. That you cannot just put the blame on social distortion, and then let's restore, okay. Now, let's go back to Mignolo. So, what Mignolo proposes is thus a version of Baudrillard's battle cry, Oublier Foucault, forget Foucault, you know, a short book by Baudrillard. Mignolo's proposal is, forget Europe. We have better things to do than to deal with European philosophy, even better things than Endlessly, endlessly deconstructing. He, Mignolo, explicitly includes all, also deconstruction in it. Like, this is still endless narcissistic self-probing. We should simply step out. 
But, but, the irony here is that this battle cry obviously did not hold for Fanon himself, who dealt intensively and was proud of it. And like the first obscenity seems to me, how dare he to quote Fanon? Fanon is my hero. That's why I defend him against, uh, against soft guys like, uh, like Homi Baba, who wrote long text trying to, to, to neutralize, normalize uh, Fanon. Like, no, he really didn't mean it with killing and violence. He meant some sublime gesture where there is no blood and nobody is really hurt and so on. So let's face it. Fanon dealt extensively and intensively with Hegel, psychoanalysis, Sartre, even Lacan. So when my third reaction, now paraphrase, would have been, when I read lines like Mignolos, I reach not for the gun, but for Fanon, for this Fanon. I'm sorry, a long quote. I quote it already in one of my books, but I love it. This is Fanon. This is true post-colonialism. Fanon says, I am a man, and what I have to recapture is the whole past of the world. I am not responsible only for the slave revolt in Santo Domingo. Every time a man has contributed to the victory of the dignity of the spirit, every time a man has said no to an attempt to subjugate his fellows, I have felt solidarity with his act. In no way does my basic vocation has to be drawn from the past of peoples of color. In no way do I have to dedicate myself to reviving some black civilization unjustly ignored. I will not make myself the man of any past. My black skin is not a repository for specific values. Haven't I got better things to do on this earth than avenge the blacks of the 17th century? I, as a man of color, do not have the right to hope that in the white man, there will be a crystallization of guilt towards the past, or past of my race. I, as a man of color, do not have the right to seek ways of stamping down the pride of my former master. I have neither the right nor the duty to demand reparations for my subjugated ancestors. There is no black mission. There is no white burden. I do not want to be victim of the rules of a black world. Am I going to ask these white men to answer for the slave traders of the 17th century? Am I going to try by every means available to cause guilt to burden in their souls? I am not a slave to slavery that dehumanized my ancestors. It would be of enormous interest to discover a black literature or architecture from the third century before Christ. We would be overjoyed to learn of the existence of a correspondence between some black philosopher and Plato. But we can absolutely not see how this fact would change the lives of eight years old kids working in the cane fields of Martinique or Guadeloupe. I find myself in the world and I recognize that I have one right alone, that of demanding human behavior from the other and so on, and so on. Sorry, but that's my position. And he was not a soft guy. He knew what is violent revolution, and so on, and so on. So again, I found very weird Mignolo to uh, focus on Fanon. 
What Fanon, end of quote, of course, clearly saw is that today's global world is capitalist and as such cannot be effectively problematized from the standpoint of pre-capitalist local culture. This is why I think Mignolo's view of the anti-capitalist struggle is deeply flawed. Here is, sorry, another quote, which really condenses all that I'm opposed to. Mignolo, again, as we know from history, the identification of the problem doesn't mean that there is only one solution, or better yet, we can coincide in the perspective of harmony as a desirable global future, but communism is only one way to move towards it. There cannot be only one solution simply because there are many ways of being, which means of thinking and doing. Communism is an option, not an abstract universal. In the non-European world, communism is part of the problem rather than, rather than the solution, which doesn't mean that if you are not communist in the non-European world, you are capitalist. So the fact that Zizek and other European intellectuals are seriously rethinking communism means that they are engaging in one option, the reorientation of the left among many, today marching towards the prospect of harmony overcoming the necessity of war, overcoming success and competition, which engender corruption and selfishness, and promoting the plenitude of life over development and death." End of quote. I claim that, first, Mignolo relies here on a totally naive, for me unacceptable, distinction between problems and solutions, like we can all identify the problem, today's global capitalism, but different cultures have different solutions. If there is a thing we really know from history, is that while it's true, the identification of a problem doesn't mean that there is only one solution, there also is all, only, there also is not only a single identification of the problem. When we encounter a problem like a global economic crisis, we get a multitude of formulation in what this problem resides, which are its causes. Like everybody more or less agrees, we at least in the developed West are in some kind of a crisis. But what you will get from different positions is not only different solutions, but simply different identifications, definitions of what the problem is. For example, a radical neoliberal will say, it's not too much state regulation, it's on the, uh, on the opposite, that, that we didn't push enough for, uh, for state-free liberal society and so on and so on. A Catholic would have said, a Catholic capitalist ecologist as a representative of the Pope said, and there is maybe God punished Pope, because did you see what happened? The moment, the, uh, a couple of minutes after Pope renounced resignation, uh, it's strike on, no? So uh, maybe there is God, but you never know, no? Sorry. So what I want to say is that these different f identifications of the problem form a dialectical unity with proposed solutions. I think the first thing to reproach, again to Mignolo, is this absolutely naive opposition of we all see what's the problem, we have different solutions. No. All definitions of the problem are always already formulated from the perspective of a possible solution. Like I was just mentioned the church, one apologist said it's crucial to see that today's crisis 
it's not about capitalism, but it's a crisis of morality. I mean, this definition, obviously, of crisis is not neutral. Uh, so, uh, which is why, again, communism, I'm almost tempted to precisely say the opposite of Mignolo, and to claim that, yes, while I definitely agree that we should not impose on all parts of the world the same path towards how to get rid of whatever today's uh, deadlocks of global capitalism, but communism for me, at least today, is not solution. Fuck it, who knows how will it look and so on. It's precisely a specific definition, determination of the problem. The idea is that our problems are, are uh, grounded in the antagonisms of capitalist self-reproduction and so on and so on. Uh, on the contrary, Mignolo's identification of the problem, I think, is worth reading carefully. You remember, I will read it again. Here is how he defines our common goal. Allegedly, we all share this opinion. Marching towards the prospect of harmony, promoting the plenitude of life. Well, certainly not my goal, you know. <laughs> That's what he thinks is a formulation of what we all share. The problem, what is for him the problem? I quote again, the necessity of war, success and competition which engender corruption and selfishness development and death. So his goal, harmony, plenitude of life, I think it's total empty nonsense. It's an empty signifier which can mean many incompatible things, precisely depending on how we understand plenitude and life of, uh, of uh, harmony. For example, uh, I can well imagine a fascist saying, yeah, yeah, Jews and Marxists introduce this harmony, so, ooh, uh, life of plenitude and harmony, absolutely, and so on. Well, uh, uh, the fast equation of development at death, as well as abstract rejection of war, corruption, and selfishness, are no less uh, meaningless abstractions. So again, you see the problem that Mignolo encounters the moment he then, he says, we share the same goal. And then he proposes his definition of the goal that absolutely I don't share. And I think that would be, but I don't have time to develop it now, not to, that's right. Yeah, uh, no, it's, I'm, uh, don't worry, I'm already almost half into it, so not very. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, okay, no, no. Yeah. What I'm saying is that, uh, I, you see, my, don't misunderstand me here. I'm much more politically correct in serious sense of anti-wrong Eurocentrism that I may appear. My critique of Migliolo is not that he is neglects Europe, but in, in his primitive anti-Eurocentrism, he is way too Eurocentric. In a naive sense that what he defines as this broader perspective doesn't work. So what Mignolo offers are not alternate modernities, but I'm tempted to say alternate postmodernities. Like, we know what's the problem, capitalist modernity, but each of our culture has its own way to step out, and so on and so on. Against such an approach, we should totally defend European universalist legacy. How? Ha ha. Now comes the problem. 
the most probably problematic part. Uh, I will take an example uh, of the point that I'm trying to make. What does it mean, the ambiguity of colonization and European universalism, by reporting to you on an incident that happened to me, not even incident, in India when I was there. Uh, uh, in a debate, an Indian cultural theorist complained that against me that I am in a privileged situation there, because he claimed it's easy for me to speak English, but am I aware of what uh, an a priori formal oppression or language colonization is the very fact that for them to debate with me, they have to use the very language of colonization, English, to formulate their very program of decolonization. Okay, so the idea was that the English language means that already formally in their very fight against colonization, they are colonized. I exploded, as you can imagine. First, I made an obvious remark, which was very well received, of typical big nation racism. Fuck him, my language is not English, you know. Like, since I come from small city, Slovene nation, it's okay for me to, talk, to speak English, no? But they, big nation, they have the dignity of whatever. But my serious answer was much more problematic for them. I claim that what this guy didn't see is how, and be very careful here, this is the Hegelian point, this imposition of English, a foreign language, created the very X which is oppressed by it. Because what is oppressed, what they feel, Indian emancipatory fighters, as being oppressed, is not the actual pre-colonial India, but the authentic dream of a new universalist democratic India. So you see my point. I totally agreed with them that they experience English language as imposed, that the fact of being compelled to speak, to, to debate in English, means that they are deprived of something. But my point was here a much more vicious one. It was that that what they feel deprived of emerged only through this loss itself by them being forced to speak English. It's not the actual pre-modern India, which was just a kind of a oppressive, plural, inconsistent society, and so on and so on. You see the nice paradox that, uh, which is why, incidentally, this is how I explain of how the great intention of British colonizers there was not we must civilize Indians, we must impose on them our values. No, from the beginning they were not so stupid, but in an evil sense they were not stupid, the British. They knew very well that to control Indians they must keep them apart. They precisely want them to stick to their own original culture. If there was no original culture, they even created it. My friends in India gave me, I quote it in, I think, in uh, uh, the uh, Living in the End Times, the first chapter, you know, the book of Manu. 
it's the great classical text, the Bible of Indian traditional uh, 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 Hindu uh, social thought. It justifies uh, castes, de describes in detail the duties, rules, and so on. Nice, but you know what's the paradox? This book didn't exist before 18th century. There were just different fragments here, there. It was put together by British colonizers to have a kind of a unique ideological body to apply it to, uh, to, to apply it to, to, uh, to apply it to Indians. So again, what I'm claiming here is that, and you know who knew this? There is another guy who is a tough guy, but he is my hero, uh, Malcolm X. That's what his X means, Malcolm X. It's not simply we blacks were deprived of our uh, original roots, we just have an X. For him, I read him, I'm not bluffing, not totally. X was precisely X of an opening, creative opening. His idea was not just we blacks are oppressed, but precisely because we are, were torn from our original constellation, whatever, and precisely because we are more without roots than the whites, we have a unique chance of becoming more universal, emancipated than the whites. Which is why, it may be problematic, but I admit it, which is why, as you all know, at the end, Malcolm X's solution was not some stupid black roots, but Islam. Precisely in his view, Islam is a radically universal religion. And, uh, uh, or to put it in yet another way, more refined, even psychologically. Uh, you know, I developed this in my Big Fat Hegel book, you know, this Lacan's idea that not only uh, uh, language is the house of being, not only we dwell in language, but that language is at the same time a torture house that we are never at home in language. That's the basic lesson of psychoanalysis called symbolic castration, whatever the bullshit, that there is a fundamental gap imbalance between being human and language. There is always goes, something goes wrong. The problem with this Indian vision is that by locating this imbalance into, in, into colonial language, you obfuscate the fact that, like, Okay, you are tortured by English language, but where is the torturing done to you by your own local previous language? In other words, the most oppressive thing that could have happened to Indians is some kind of false liberation when someone would have told him, okay, let's get rid of English, let's, let's return to your primordial, whatever this was, culture. You know what, how would this liberation look? Warning to those who are sensitive, now comes a really dirty story. A joke about Jesus Christ, which was told to me, I love them, by a Palestinian Christian in Ramallah when I was there. The joke is this one, it's vulgar. Not even a good joke, but I like the logic. Uh, the last evening before crucifixion, you know, Christ was there praying in the tent and so on, and of course he was God, and he's, they all knew this is his last day in peace, no? So the apostles are worried, you know, like, oh my God, our, our Lord did such great things and he didn't have any fun in his life, no? So 
let's organize some fun of him. So they called Mary Magdalene, no? And says, would you go in and seduce? So that at least the last night he will have some fun, you know. Okay, being who she is, no, she said, oh, gladly, no, <laughs> Went in, after five minutes, in a totally, with totally horrified cry, she ran out. And they asked her, no, don't worry, Christ is a good guy. He didn't rape her or what, much worse. Uh, uh, she asked her what went wrong, and she said, first, everything was okay. I danced a little bit before our Lord, then I pulled out my skirt, I spread widely my legs, and he looked interesting, and then, and then Christ looked closely at my vagina, and he said, oh, what a terrible wound, and put a hand on it and closed it totally, you know. Like, something like that would have been, I think, returned to pre-colonial origins, you know. The whole point is that, how should I put it, uh, to, to admit the wound, to fully identify with it. Like, for me, again, uh, the true victory over colonialism is not, re let's return to some primitive local culture, but it's to... What is already happening, this is why I have nothing against English language. Intelligent American conservatives already knew it. Okay, English language is winning today. But if you look at it closely, it's no longer American or British English. It's English whose model speakers are probably some kind of a half illiterate in English literature, Singapore merchants or whatever. Or Greeks who will ruin all us, Europe, with their laziness, but that's another story. Sorry, no, but uh, uh, what has all, now I will conclude quickly, but what has all to do with uh, Hegel? My, I'm so sorry, I don't have time to do it because, you know, I'm getting tired of politics. It may surprise you. I am now in the middle, even already finishing, a big new book on Hegel which will not be as long as the other one, it will have just six, seven hundred pages. And there now, and I focus precisely on this, how the Hegelian dialectical process is not this type of, from some immediate unity, you have split and then magically synthesis again. No, at the beginning is the fall for Hegel. The good example would be this Indian example. You have a pre-colonial situation. We shouldn't demonize it. Maybe it was worse, maybe it was better. The problem is just that it was something, as it were, totally different. And also we should not forget there was nothing immediate, substantial about it. It has its own... And the problem is then something new happens, like British colonization, and something is lost. But what is lost? is not what was actually lost. What is lost is retroactively created through this very loss. And if you think I'm dreaming here, that's the whole point, for example, of Hegel of his re in his reading of Christianity. He says it openly that uh, paradise is simply stupid animal kingdom. That loss, uh, fall comes first. Fall itself creates what it is the fall from that dimension. So again, for Hegel, overcoming the fall does not mean you somehow squeeze back to purity. It means that you fully immerse yourself into the fall and, as it were, you see the liberating potential of the fall itself.
uh, or uh, which is why again you should be very cautious about this logic of you know Hegel beginning then things go wrong then magically they come together first thing don't go wrong they are wrong for, from the very beginning as it were uh, and again at the end you don't get any synthesis or whatsoever and now if you allow me nonetheless five minutes to quickly conclude why is this important because of our present historical moment i think that what we should get rid of if we want seriously to maintain a radical emancipatory political perspective is what i ironically am tempted to call the Hölderlin paradigm Hölderlin, you know the german poet minor one Kleist was better, but that's another point. Uh, you know his famous uh, uh, line uh, quoted endlessly by Heidegger and others, wo das Gefahr ist, wächst das rettende Rau. Where there is danger, the redeeming or solving solution arises also. This reading that today we are approaching some zero point of extreme danger alienation, but this danger at the same time renders possible the solution. You know, like we have this in Marx clearly, capitalism as the utter alienation, but at the same time opening up the possibility of collective reappropriation of the alienated substance, Heidegger forgetting of being, but care, the reversal, emerging it, even Derrida, I would have said, is in this very strangely. He always emphasized that we are living in the final moment of the metaphysical closure. That, you know, like metaphysical closure is coming to end, exhausting its possibility, and so on and so on. I think that what we should learn from Hegel is precisely that this entire paradigm is to be dropped. That what Hegel calls reconciliation is not some magic solution, but it's precisely to this reconciliation with the evil, the fall itself, to see how what appears as evil is at the same time the very recourse of our salvation, like what Malcolm X saw. Yes, X, we were terribly, brutally deprived, but this deprivation, depriving us white slaveholders of our black roots gives us a unique possibility of being universal subjects of emancipation and as it were beating the blacks sorry beating the whites at their own at their own uh, terrain so uh, what also but this solution is not a sin now i'm really concluding is not a cynical one namely a cynical one in the sense of yeah okay we need fall to redeem ourselves, so we should manipulate or whatever. With this, I will conclude. I think rather that if there is a lesson, progressive one, from the, the ongoing crisis, it's that cynicism doesn't work. I was still surprised how even a guy from whom I would have expected more, my good friend Fred Jameson, again recently repeated that old stupidity that we live in cynical times where ruling ideology no longer takes itself seriously, so we don't even need today critique of ideology. We no longer need that delicate Hegelian conceptual analysis of 
uh, of, uh, of discerning the inconsistencies, the, the, the voids of argumentation. Those in power are brutal. They admit everything more or less openly. We live in post-ideological, cynical times. You will never surprise those in power by demonstrating to them that they are lying, that they are inconsistent, and so on. I think this is maybe the most dangerous illusion that there is. If there is something to be learned from Freud, it is that precisely this type of perverse, cynical openness is at the same time the greatest illusion. You are really in illusion in social, material social life. Not when you are telling some uh, uh, dreaming stories about divine intervention, but precisely when you adopt the cynical attitude, you know, like, fuck it, what ideals? Let's be frank, it's all about money, power, power, uh, pleasures, whatever. Precisely this type of cynical realism doesn't work. It's the most, you are most blinded. Why? What you don't see is precisely illusions which still regulate your life precisely when you think you are directly, brutally realist. Let's not forget, for example, the crisis of 2008. It was not caused by some crazy welfare state idealists. It was caused precisely by, you know that Michael Douglas bullshit, that uh, greed is good, cynical realists. Precisely those who think we have no illusions, that's the brutality of life, they are most. This is the big lesson of Hegel. This does not mean life is just a model, we can't do anything, but now I'm really, you see, like, just concluding. Uh, you know, uh, I think that what's great in Hegel is that he is a post-eschatological thinker. His problem is not things are bad, but we are there, just push it a little bit and everything will turn around and so on and so on. The greatness of Hegel is that he is a post-apocalyptic thinker in the sense of we tried it, okay, I don't agree with Hegel here, but his idea is French Revolution. They tried to realize freedom, it went terribly wrong for Hegel, I'm not so sure, like French revolutionary terror. And then his point is precisely to demonstrate how this doesn't mean we were wrong. We should accept the lesson of what for Hegel is the fiasco of French Revolution is simply the openness of history. It's not predetermined, it went wrong, it just means Hegel does compel us to accept a certain basic alienation of social life. But it doesn't, not in the Marxist sense that, oh, irreducibly, we are enslaved to some alienated substance, fate, capital, whatever, to rule us. No, uh, I think Hegel would have loved the paradox of today, which is the more we are aware of how capitalism relies on our own fictions, on virtual reality and so on, so we are well aware there is no capital in itself mystique. We are playing with our fictions and so on. Precisely when we know fully that there is no substantial metaphysical capital with a capital C, that is just we are fighting with our fictions, the less we are able to, to dominate it. So there is no big other, but this doesn't mean it's just me. 
It means that the situation becomes much more non-transparent and so on and so on. So again, I think that the lesson of Hegel, now I'm very short, I will develop more this in my book, is that, uh, is that the struggle for freedom should go on, but we should just learn to accept its dangers. There is no ontological guarantee. It's a risky struggle. There is no guarantee how it will end. We cannot ever step on our shoulder and control the effects of what we do. So again, I think that that's, again, this is what we need today. Because again, the thing to avoid today is precisely, I think, this type of cheap cynicism and... Uh, no, uh, I will just add something that you will like. You know, I agree here with Costas. I really think that Syriza is something special. Maybe you don't read in your newspapers enough about it, but I really think that Tsipras is a genius. Because the way, I will not go into it how, the way he unites a principled attitude and very intelligent, pragmatic compromises. For example, I pray to God that he will succeed trying to make a deal with Europe, kind of a controlled temporary divorce, you know, like step out of euro for two years to put it in order, then rejoin the euro. It's interesting how even his enemies, like Financial Times here I read. There was, I think, a couple of months ago, a comment in Financial Times where they said, what, even if we disagree with him in fundamental issues, Tsipras seems to be the only guy in Greece who talks sense, you know. Thank you. Thank you. See, you see, your masters in new democracy paid you to interrupt me now. No? Okay, so we had a number of uh, criticism or self-criticism coming through that uh, covered a number of areas. Indeed, we did start with this uh, critique of the multitude and the rhizomatic to the legend and so on. I thought that after the various debates that you had, including with me, about uh, the Tahrir Square, Syntagma, and whether the soul, you would have changed. And uh, you've changed, but only partly. You know, you repeat yourself again in English. But that we can leave it for another occasion. It is very interesting, however, that in your kind of references today, you have uh, co-opted two people that in the past were kind of like arts, if not arts enemies, but clearly mm. uh, great opponents, Heidegger and Derrida. God forbid. I mean, you know, sort of suddenly, wait a minute. I critically you criticize your great friend Wang Hui, and I should tell you that Wang Hui is the perhaps you know the most prominent representative of the Chinese New Left. He's someone who edits. He's the editor of the magazine Dushu, a monthly magazine that sells up to half a million copies, and he's the New Left. And indeed, I should say that uh, Wang Hui will be given a masterclass here at the Berkeley Institute of Humanities in late October, early November. We will announce that and hopefully you'll come to talk with Wang Hui because yeah. you know suddenly praising Derrida and criticizing Wang Hui sounded a bit strange to me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Walter Mignolo we can discuss some other time. It was such a rich uh, series of topics that you touched uh, today, Slavo. So I suppose you know lots of people. No, but wait a minute. Very shortly. Very shortly. First, this was a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it clear that I criticized Derrida and Heidegger? That they are still part of this, what I called Helderlin paradigm. Things are bad, but we are close to better. No. Uh, my only critical claim was there that 
Hegel is usually taken as part of that paradigm. Extreme alienation and then op op. No, 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 no. It was a mis Second, Van Kui, I was critical of him at a very specific point, which is that this left Friedmanism. He really thinks that market is at its basic dimension a just market and it's just distorted by strong bureaucracy and so on and so, so on. So, I mean, my first very brief question is if someone wants to know your Hegel position, should they buy less than nothing? at 1,200 pages or wait for the next book at 600 pages? Will the next book summarize the idea? They should buy all of my books. <laughs> and okay. two copies. Two and copies. Two copies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay, questions. Uh, the gentleman on the back. Just a point of Can you please start Please, a little bit louder or come here, I'm sorry. You, know, you said uh, that in the opposition between Badger and, and broadly postmodernism, both poles were wrong. Yeah. And then I didn't understand whether you were saying that somehow there was some new form of social link possible that was not founded on either yeah. patriarchal or yeah. patriarchal. Is that what you said? It was yeah. possible. And? I just wanted to clarify. Like, yeah, no, no. The, yeah, the idea is that I don't believe, to put it in very clear, simple terms, that this alternative, either patriarchal order with the master, all this the lesbian multitude, blah, blah, that this is the only choice. That there is a possibility of the disciplined collective action, which is nonetheless not grounded in the figure of a master. It's a very simple point. Well, difficult to explain it, but I mean, it sounds a simple point. But oh, wait a minute, my point is very simple. If you reject this, then my God, then the only alternative is either some postmodern capitalist individualism or traditional hierarchy. I mean, I thought I even said something. That's what Lacan told to the students in 68. That's why he was wrong. That's why he was wrong. I don't have any problems here. Okay. Lacan also would get his re-education camp if <laughs> he were to be alive when I take power. Sorry, please. <laughs> I'd just like to return to the question of violence. You were talking about violence as uh, coming, coming from the authority, and you, you called it as it's, a, an, it's an act of cowardice. And then you also talked of violence as in radicality, uh, mm. anti-systemic subversion, mm. as in a radical social change. But I want to ask you about uh, the spontaneity of violence in uh, riots or protest movements. Mm. And we know what the classical liberal response usually is in the media right afterwards. It's the immediate response the demonization of uh, this kind of violence. Can you be, can you more yeah, yeah. elaborate yeah, on yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and perhaps because our friend here is from Slovenia, he could say a few things about the recent events in Slovenia. <coughs> and I would like to, but the only problem is that like, what do you know about it? You know what I mean? I would have to explain the background. I just think that now, and literally now, yesterday evening, the, whatever you call it, right populist uh, leader and uh, government fell, I think that now is the crucial moment. The trap to be avoided is now to give too much a chance to this government now. The great thing of the protest movement in Slovenia was that, uh, no, the slogan was neither nor, which meant yes, of course, no to the, this right-wing populism, but at the same time, no to, I didn't know how to call them, this uh, pseudo-left, post-communist orientation, full of corruption, without any ideas. For example, it shocked me, shocked me when one of the representatives of this official left, left, let's call it, 
said, when asked why does he consider himself a leftist, he said that the crucial point of reference to decide who is left or right today in Slovenia is how do you relate to the partisan World War II struggle. Okay, I mean, I don't demonize partisan struggle. I just think that in today's crisis here at now, isn't it very sad if the only thing that comes to your mind is... Uh, so again, I, I think that uh, the dangerous moment will arrive now. There are, uh, this movement in Slovenia is extremely important, which is why in an almost pure clinical way, you can see how different circles tried to reappropriate it. On the one hand, the ex-official left tried to claim, oh, it's the same battle, they are ours, and so on and so on. But also, and this will render me unpopular in Slovenia, I... I don't Yeah, but I will make a step further, where I will brutally attack all these writers' union and so on, attempt at reappropriation by the cultural establishment. I mean, I... Uh, I'm, totally opposed to them, I think that the... So, so again... The question of violence that... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, but, no, no, here, uh, I mean, again, we have to uh, delineate clearly. On the one, I don't think that so-called objective violence, violence inscribed into the order, social order as such, justifies subjective violence, because some people criticized me for this, that my notion of objective violence gives too much space for this quick justification of like, you know, I can start shooting whatever and I can say, oh, it was just my reaction to the invisible uh, objective violence or whatever and so on and so on. But although I'm not saying this, but nonetheless, I think that the only way to understand so-called subjective violence, like of protesters, is to take into account the objective invisible violence, violence in the institutions themselves. It has to be called violence. You lose the whole, you lose the whole point. If you don't say this, then, I mean, this is for me the ABC, the beginning of proper dialectical analysis, that you don't locate violence only in what disturbs the existing order. You have to see the violence which is already here in the order, as it were, in the existing order itself. And uh, you know where is it for me here as to physical violence, so that I will not appear as any advocate of physical violence. As already said, this is for me typical about uh, Tahrir Square. Didn't the people notice that the violence of the protesters, which was for me real radical violence, why? Because, my God, they brought the whole state to a stop. What more violent thing can you imagine? But was, they didn't basically kill anyone. They came there to the Takri Square and they said, we stay here, we don't move. And then all physical violence was done precisely by the forces of order, as they put it repeatedly, in order to return things to normal, in order to reestablish order. You know, all those tax paid by Mubarak forces who attacked people on Tahrir Square and so on and so on. I think that, that this whole liberal view of things basically the way they are when nothing happens are normal and then violence is just changed. No, the ABC of Marxism, and here I am a Marxist, is that there is 
a tremendous amount of violence necessary for just the things to go on the way they are. And if we don't take this into account, you know, then, then in a way, then, then we are lost, in a way. Okay, uh, a couple of questions for the next round. Can I ask something on that point? Then uh, how is the revolution in the normal state of affairs, how can a revolution in the normal state of affairs happen? Because uh, it's not the violence that you say in this exact moment, but when things return to normal, there is kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, let me, let me make some things clear. Uh, I am no big fan of physical violence. I'm not crazy. But nonetheless, you know, now I'll say something horrible, okay? Uh, like, uh, there are moments when you need violence, you know, when you need real violence. I don't have any problems with that. For example, you know, uh, uh, I read a wonderful interview with some black guys who protested, I don't know where, it was years ago when I was young, and they did some disusual protests, they broke some windows and so on, no? And then white liberals came to them and said, but we all sympathize with you. Why didn't you just make the point? Why did you have to be violent? And the guy gave a perfect answer, no? He says, yes, but you know, if we were just be doing what you are telling us to do now, you wouldn't be here now. We would be maybe a small footnote in a local newspaper. <laughs> you, know what, you, know, you, you know what I mean. Or let me give you another brutal example, which is really maybe shocking to you, where I'm ready to condone not torture, but personal, private, brutal pressure and so on. Friends from Turkey told me a wonderful story. There is a big prison somewhere in the eastern Turkey, mostly for Kurdish so-called terrorists, yeah. where, of course, they were I was told this story, even if it's not true, it makes a point nicely. And they are there, of course, they were tortured. All of a sudden, the tor uh, tor torturing declined tremendously in that prison. And then some Turkish journalists, that's the story I've heard in Istanbul, went there and looked into it and discovered what happened. Because this was a small community, like prisoner guards also lived there, and terrorists, so-called terrorists, uh, arrested there. Were, uh, they simply looked at, because it was a relatively small prison, they were like, who is doing the torturing? Who is they? They traced them to their private dwellings, houses, and simply they told them, you know, like, if you touch that guy again, your son will be beaten, your daughter will be raped, and so on. And look, look what happened, torturing disappeared, no? I'm not saying that I'm very glad of this, but I, I don't think we have any moral right to say no to these guys. In a desperate situation, like imagine somebody close to you being tortured nearby and you can't do anything. We don't have any right to be, to be opposed to that, and so on and so on. You know, like, uh, this is what always uh, shocks me, how, how selective we are always in violence. Which violence is visible, which violence is invisible. Like, I'm sorry if you already know this, but my eternal example. People say, ooh, horror, human rights, this country, that country. I mean, if you really care about human suffering, then go to Republic of Congo and do something, you know. But nothing happens there, because it's simply not within our perspective, nobody cares. Everybody knows Congo is as close as you can come to hell on earth. Or another example of violence. 
which was pretty tough, but I think it was fully justified. I know the situation in detail. I spoke with people. Aristide in Haiti, yes, absolutely, he used gangs. He used black gangs against other black gangs and so on and so on. But he abs was absolutely justified in doing it and so on and so on. So no, I don't play here. I don't play here an innocent. I'm just saying that we should rediscover the this is for me emancipatory violence, like very simple, like Tahrir Square. People coming there and simply say, fuck you, we stay here till. This, can you imagine anything more violent, although nobody is hurt? The whole life is brought to, to a standstill. And this is my problem with Slovenia, as a good friend of mine, good journalist, Bostian Widemczek, developed, that in Slovenia, maybe we are not yet desperate enough. Our protests were not like Tahrir Square or, or your Greece, where people stay there. No, our protesters come there for two hours and then they dance and go home, you know, and like uh, this sense of urgency is meeting. It's when two problems I have with Slovenia and how incredibly, how everyone accepts this bullshit that it's the time of a crisis, we need unity. No, we need division. We need the right division. You know what shocked me, if you are in Slovenia, I now wrote an essay, which will be interview with me, but I don't like to be asked questions, so I wrote <laughs> questions and answers. Uh, the right-wingers had a big meeting on the main square in Slovenia, and they published there a declaration demanding four points. At the same, on the same day, two hours later, there was the opposite leftist revolt meeting. What shocked me is that if you look at this declaration of the rightists, it was what? We need a state of law where all people are equal. We need a transparent, just system, and so on. I was so frustrated by this, like I almost wanted to propose, but everyone would subscribe this. So why don't they organize Yansha and why don't they organize one big meeting and vote for this same resolution? And I, what I'm saying is that that's maybe the tragedy of Slovenia that this is a terrible indictment of a situation when even a difference cannot be properly formulated. Everyone agrees with this total bullshit which is meaningless. We need more transparent democracy and so on. And that some idiots even give me Switzerland as a model of uh, transparent. Are they crazy? Switzerland is the most oppressive state in Europe. You have referendums, referenda in Switzerland. But I know I'm evil guy. When I'm there, I ask friends there. They have public referenda. But you know, when you get the voting paper, you get, we did another paper which suggests you how to vote. <laughs> then, yes, and we know the wonderful results of Swiss referendum, no? It's that that's why precisely women got the right to vote only two decades ago, I think, there. That's why they prohibited minarets uh, to construction and so on. This is what I meant before. No, we have to accept this. Okay, I'm not an old Stalinist, intellectuals don't know, especially in Greece, don't know what they want. But, but people also, literally, we are all lost. I don't accept this Maoist bullshit, learn from the people, people know. No, people don't know. They need not an authoritarian leader, but an authentic leader is not the one who uh, orders you. An authentic leader is the one who tells you and then you discover yourself. Oh my God, now I know what I want. 
So again, uh, it's just a messy situation, no? But I think, on the other hand, I'm nonetheless not a pessimist. To conclude with this, take Greece. Yes, we can say liberal cynics are now triumphing. So where are we now? It's worse than ever. Life was even a little bit more free under Mubarak. Now we have uh, a pact between Islamists and the army. True, but don't underestimate it. At the same time, now we have a well-organized civil society clearly opposed to Islamists and to the army. It's a whole new, much more authentic political subject which emerged. And back to Slovenia, I think the absolutely crucial point is that the protest movement will not be swallowed by any of the existing, the old left, the cultural people writers. Just something must emerge. We shouldn't worry about uh, who with whom we make a coalition. The main well, task... You, in the, you know, the, after the Italian election, perhaps become the leader of that I, first, I don't deserve it, I don't want... Italian elections, if anything, make me very skeptic of this, you know, you carnevalesque principle. But Slovenia does not have a leader like that. I mean, you know, you are the kind of person who can be the role... Slovenia may be a city country, but yeah. I think they are nonetheless wise enough not to... <laughs> it would be their final indictment to, to accept me as a leader. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> Somehow, you know what I mean? <laughs> No, no, no. What I just makes me afraid is... Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, how, uh, how, put it? how people are afraid to say this obvious thing, like, what bullshit unity? We need proper division. All authentic unity comes from an act of division. And sorry if I repeat myself, but my most beautiful example is the one which definitely you will probably agree with it, nothing problematic, General de Gaulle the guy who did unite Frenchmen. You know how he started? With the most crazy minority division you can imagine. In 1940, his position was, no, the war is not over. We should attack even the French forces. And don't forget something. This is the secret which has to be spelled out. The Petain government was fully democratically legitimized. When France was defeated, large majority of Assemblée Nationale met in San Bordeaux, I don't know where down there, and voted powers of... So Petain was formally legally right when he says, who is the goal? It's like wild military force opposing a democratically justified government. You need to begin by... A, you know what? The problem is not... I'm not a sectarian. Of course we have to make all possible coalitions and so on. But my God, before you make a coalition, you have to like, you know, what even dogs or wolves are doing when you urinate around you too. You have to mark your terrain. You have to define yourself. If you don't do this, then coalitions are meaningless, no? And what I am afraid of is that I hope that the protest movement will retain the strength not to fall into this trap. Because something, maybe, you know, you know what was beautiful in Slovenia? And I precisely didn't want to intervene because I didn't want to appear an old guy who tries to reapproach. But it was an incredible intellectual explosion. All of a sudden, 70, 80, 100 people start to write texts debating how to change society or all that. And it was totally outside these official types of discourse. The official left than the, 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 these cultural people who I think 
I think they in Slovenia are most of them perfectly covered by that term that I borrowed from Milner, uh, revolt of the salaried bourgeoisie, you know. Nobody of them cared a shit when thousands, ten thousands of textile workers and so on uh, lost their jobs. All of a sudden their privilege a little bit cut on, oh, they discovered that they are also protesters, all these people of culture, you know. No, 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 it's like Syriza. We are in the Leninist phase, okay, without some... Not in Syriza, but anyway. <laughs> okay, that's another thing. We will, when you will be arrested, when I took over, you will explain all this to the... No, no, seriously. What, no, no, but I mean Lenin is simply... The greatness of Syriza for me is that they were not afraid to organize themselves as a serious political agent they know this, you know, for me, true political greatness is you are in a shitty situation when you know there is no simple solution. But you don't say, oh, so let's wait for the big revolution. You are not afraid to take all the risks. This is for me true political heroism. This is what Aristide did in, in Haiti. I know people who knew Aristide, and he, he didn't have any illusions. He wasn't a crazy new Che Guevara who thought I will trigger an all Latin American revolution. But you know, the things is lost in the long term, but nonetheless you said, whatever the hell, let's try, let's risk, let's do something. Again, this is for me crucial in Slovenia, in other places, that something will remain. Now this was obfuscated by this debate, do we need a new party or not? But, you know, the problem is not the party, because what I'm afraid is that this debate then meant should the movement become another term just to help the old left, pseudo-left coalition to retain power. No, 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 we shouldn't worry about that. The point is that some institutional, collective, intellectual, whatever forum should remain. This is absolutely crucial at this point, no? Okay, so can we have a couple of, uh, two or three last questions? You can answer all of them together, so we can... Uh, I, don't, I only know that you are doing now some such mean manipulations yeah. uh, that I cannot even any, imagine any what you are doing. No. No, is it clear to you what is he doing, you know, with this... Okay. Someone on the back? Yes, 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 yes the back. One, Mario, did you... Did you uh, he even wanted to mobilize you in his <laughs> manipulation. <laughs> Violence uh, versus non-violence, and yeah. the way to mm. institute concepts are, are necessarily conflated or conflated. Yeah. Um, what remains of violence? I, I, I had some. I, I don't know what you make of non-violence thereafter, because there seems to be very little left for it, whatever way. This is, in a way, true. Yeah. And we get to the second question: was uh, again on violence. You, you seem to. Uh, a phrase negatively uh, reactive violence in the same way that uh, uh, Nietzsche would have too positive about it. But then uh, if, if the, the state of affairs is violent itself, then true violence must be reactive violence, mustn't it? Yeah, reactive in this sense that you know by... by uh, yeah, no, I see what you mean, but nonetheless, true violence must not be only, it must nonetheless here agree with you, with violence like not just reacting to it within the same field, but with a vision to change the entire field. This is, and this was for me, for example, in Slovenia, the tragedy that uh, the existing 
right and the existing so-called left remind me, I used this metaphor years ago, and it was censored, even by Mladina, the leftists, they didn't want to publish the illustration of, you know that Escher paradox, two hands drawing each other. I think this was the old left and right in Slovenia. They literally needed each other to reproduce them. So true violence is for me not to destroy the enemy, but to change the entire field so that the enemy becomes uh, ridiculous. Or let me give you how this looks in a discursive strategy. True violence is not that in a tough fight you, we defeat advocates of rape, of racism. True violence is for me a change in the entire discursive field so that when somebody advocates rape, you don't even have to attack me, he simply appears as an idiot, you know, haha, <laughs> interesting, stupid, you know what I mean, like, like, uh, uh, this is why, again, I, I know I repeat this all the time, it can be problematic, I attempt that to praise dogmatism here, and that's why I react like crazy, you remember in The Guardian when uh, they published that Zero Duck 30 piece, no? How some people fell again for her point, claiming, uh, but don't I see that she is not for torture? She just wants neutrally to report and to make us think. Well, fuck you. I don't want to think about this. And for me, it's already a fiasco if you think about it. Like, in, uh, to see what is wrong, imagine a similar approach to rape. I would have presented a movie where I would report on rape and without being against, and then I would say, you don't get the point. I want you to start the debate about rape. What is there to debate there? We have, you know what I mean? Uh, and incidentally, maybe, I hope this will amuse you at least a little bit. I love them. They published me at Guardian. But in that text, they did censor three, four of my lines. How did you allow that? Sorry? How did you allow that? In my magnificent, I'm a good guy. I'm like Comrade Stalin in his best <laughs> mood, you know. No, uh, you remember I report there how I attacked, but this is the obvious thing. This American double speak, you know, instead of torture, you say enhanced interrogation technique, no? Already they left out part of the sentence which makes my point clear, that this uh, neutralization at the level of words is strictly correlative to the strengthening of the actual torture violence. But then I did something which obviously was too much of them, but I found it totally politically correct and acceptable. I said that what if we do the same with rape, and without rape, we say enhanced seduction technique, and so on. No, incredible, it disappeared, it disappeared, you know. So it's incredible how even with them, you know, like there, there was, uh, there, uh, there was the, the air. Ah, can I, okay, so that you will see how tough are these problems. My good friend Udi Aloni uh, told me that he now finished a movie, very good one, on subculture in, on the West Bank among Palestinians. Excellent documentary. You get a totally different picture. It's wonderful, you know. Do you know that uh, West Bank is the only, so it looks, part of mi Middle East Arab countries where you have open gay culture. You have gay clubs and so on and so on. But his point is this one. Uh, he presents there a punk band from West Bank 
which did a couple of songs attacking their own culture, attacking, uh, how do you call this, honor killings, you know, of women who blah, blah. And he told me he was shocked. He presented this film in United, in LA, in Los Angeles, and he was ferociously attacked by some politically correct idiots there, claiming, but you shouldn't do this. Can't you see that Palestinians do honor killings as a reaction because because Israelis kept them in isolation from culture and so on. So as if, you know, like even this type of self-criticism is not allowed, we should be glad because I agree that we Western people, it's always the danger of liberal patronizing if we just attack their honor killings. But these are, my God, their own people who formulated it. And even here, the political correctness enters, you know, and no, you shouldn't, and so on and so on. Why am I opposed to this? Because are we aware what humiliating image of Palestinians this presupposes? That they are so stupid, isolated there, that they cannot even be held to be mature enough to attack themselves, their own set practices like, uh, like honor killings, and so on and so on. You know? Of course! And there's no reaction there. No, they supported him, but don't underestimate Ramallah, it's a great city, my God. All my, I practiced it there. I, I told you, the joke I told you about Jesus Christ, I got it in Ramallah. My God, the joke that I repeated here years, years ago, why do Iraqi women don't want to fuck American soldiers? Because after American soldiers finish it, they talk all the time about pulling out, but never do it. This is remarkable. Ramallah is a civilized country, my God. You know why? What I did with, 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 uh, with Udi Aloni and with the good guy, the producer, James Shamos, Focus Pictures, we did a thing I'm really proud of. Last summer, we organized in Ramallah. We wanted to do it in Jenin, but that guy Giuliano was killed there, we couldn't. Cinema theory school. And 80 people came there, of them, 10 from Israel. This is the true struggle for Palestina. They told me they are sick and tired of white people coming there, shouting free Palestina. They wanted to be treated as equal. Isn't this an intellectual triumph that Israeli people who want to learn about, not patronizing about Palestinian culture, but about cinema theory, go to Ramallah to, to learn about it. It was a triumph, and it was totally, like, all I can say is that they are totally normal, in my sense, I mean, full of dirty jokes and so on. And not once did I have, it's typical how, when I'm in primitive countries, like here in the United States, you know, they always tell me, oh, be careful about your jokes. Nobody told me this there in Ramallah, you know. Okay, I think uh, we don't have any more questions. You have answered. Ah, okay, sorry. You know, I doubt that you really think, yes. but that's another question. I have uh, Please. Thank you. I was wondering whether you could expand at another point of your argument with Simon Priestley on an article called Kids and their ethical arguments and the state uh, acting as a super ego to their demands and him replying that you are sort of waiting for a right moment to come and in between. Okay, I, let me put it like this. I see, I see your question. First, all that super ego stuff slightly surprised me because in his book, infinitely demanding, he claims that 
One of the claims is that Lacan sees only the, this terrorizing, demanding aspect of superego, but we should see the comical aspect of superego, which, you know, makes it more comical, easier, and so on. Well, he didn't do his homework there. First, Lacan, I remember, has long pages on how already Kant knew it that there is always something comical in the demand of the superego, but Lacan knew something more. That this comical aspect of superego doesn't make it softer, but makes it even a much more, uh, a much more uh, uh, brutal, sadistic. sadistic, and so on. Yes, I mean this is for me the deepest insight already of Freud and so on. That you know, it's not that the power is dignified and laughter is subversive. There can be cynical humor and laughter also on the side of those in power. Just, I don't know the author, but recently somebody sent me a wonderful text which describes the whole shift from Leninism to Stalinism strictly in the sense of humor. How, you know, the type of political humor you heard in party congresses and so on, like it totally changes from the left, uh, sorry, from the late uh, 20s. As to that, the right moment, I'm li a little bit embarrassed to answer to this reproach because again and again from my first book I quote Rosa Luxemburg and so on. That's the ABC of the Lacanian theory of the act that there is never the right moment. If you wait for the right moment it will never arrive. Because as Rosa Luxemburg put it nicely against those social democrats who says oh too early for revolution we should wait that there is a time of revolution when the revolutionary subject is ready. But to get the revolutionary subject ready, you have to do the premature attempts and so on. And uh, you know who here did a wonderful thing? Uh, a guy called Andrew Kutrofello from Chicago, uh, Lacanian Hegelian, which are good qualifications for me. He now is writing a book on Lacan and Act, and very nicely critical of Badiou, namely where he develops how Hamlet should be uh, should be reinterpreted as a much more progressive figure, Hamlet von Blake. Namely, the idea is this one, that the paradox that every act is always between too late and too early. But there is never the right moment, you know. It's at the same time always too late, because the situation is already catastrophic. You always, in a way, act reacting to a catastrophe. But at the same time, it's too early because you wait, wait, and then you have to act. You know, you never, if you wait for the right moment, there never will be the right moment. No, so again, uh, I find it, that's why I don't even want to reply to all this. I find so boring and unproductive polemics where you have to spend 80% of the time just explaining where the other guys didn't... Uh, understand you properly. I only reacted briefly in digital media to John Gray because that was for me a little bit too much. Again, this idea that somehow in a twisted way I'm laying the foundations for the new Holocaust, you know. Like, this is, you know, based on that, you know what is his reason? I'm saying that, to simplify it, I'm saying that it's not only Jew who is in my mind, it's me that for the Nazi he is also in the Jew. And then he says, oh, so Nazis in the Jew? So the only way to get rid of the Nazis, if they are in the Jews, is to kill the Jews. No, 
So, ah, 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 Zizek is preparing the new Holocaust. My God, I mean, no. I mean, no, I, you know what I mean? Like, this is what disgusted me so much. The very same people who claim to be, you know, highly ethical and so on, are absolutely, and in my interview for that self-interview of that, I'm like Comrade Stalin here. You know how you recognize Stalin's style? I love this. Stalin always asks a question and answer. You know, typical Stalin, what are comrades the problems of our present moment? Comrades, the problems of our present moment are, and so on, you know. Like uh, in this interview, you know, which is just to give you an idea of how it is in Slovenia. Uh, there was some couple of years ago a certain Svetlana Makarovic woman writer rejected a state prize. And uh, then uh, uh, some priest, some Catholic theoretician, was bothered by it. He characterized the situation like this. He wrote, I know this woman. She is very kind as a person. Even she is moral. Why the, did she do this? Uh, refuse that prize. And then he goes on literally, saying, uh, she looked there on stage where she said, no, I reject the prize, as if she is under the control of some foreign evil power, as if it's not herself. And then, without any argumentation, she goes on and says, and then I thought, who can represent this power in Slovenia, pure evil? It's Lacanians. And he said, so it must be that Lacanians somehow control her. I mean, it's pure madness. We don't know her. I, I, I hate Slovene writers. I, uh, I don't, it's just like, this shocks me so much how, like, literally anything can be said. Like, there, there are simply, or, for example, another big, uh, uh, who was it? Yes, opposition politician attacked me, claiming that it's my thesis that I think that the Western civilization is a dark stain which should be brutally annihilated. Like, ah, ah, okay. I mean, I, I wrote, my God, I'm a good Christian, atheist Christian. I wrote four books defending Western legacy and so on, and so you can say this. I, I really think that we live in, this is what always shocks me, how maybe I'm even too naive for being surprised here, how actual polemics work. The trick is, you know, rhetoric can be so strong here. Like, let's say I accuse you of something which is totally wrong, and you protest. And then I say something like, oh, again, your excuses, and so on, and so on. You know, with this purely rhetorical means you can do it. It's incredible how much a normal debate presupposes from, from both sides at this level. But, but you have like this. Very point. We have to say thank you to Slava for your answer. Thank you. Ah, one more thing. Forget about that bullshit summer school. In the middle of May, 1315, there is something which is really a child of love, you know. It's a, here, a three days. Hegel Congress. With my Slovene friends, Alenka Zupancic, Mladen Dolar, we got all the guys we like, Katrin uh, Manabu, Rebecca Komei, Frank Ruda, and so on. And it will be pure madness to rehabilitate the notion of absolute 